Well, this evening we're going to be talking about an important subject. If we, um, if we uh, think about the book of Revelation, we've, we've noticed a couple of descriptions of God's people in the last days. We've noticed, for example, that they have the faith of Jesus, right? They, they keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. That's one of the descriptions of those who are ready and waiting for His coming at the end. And um, there are other ways that God's people are described as well. It, uh, God's people are described, His body, His church is described as, in, in, some, in some cases, the New Jerusalem itself. In fact, in, in Revelation chapter 19, if you have your Bibles, you can look with me there. And um, let's look in Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 and 8 and 9. And you remember, this is the story, this is just immediately preceding the story of the white horse, the king, the Lord of lords and king of kings coming on the white horse, the coming of Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Redeemer. Notice with me the description of God's people as they wait. Verse 7 says, let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him for the marriage of the lamb is come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in, what does it say? fine linen, and how is it described? Clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think this fine linen, clean and white, is the righteousness of the saints? Do you think that's our own good works? No. Why do you think that? Well, we remember that the Bible doesn't contradict itself, right? And Isaiah tells us that all of our righteousnesses are as what, everyone? Filthy rags. So compare fine linen, clean and white, and filthy rags, and there should be a contrast, right? There's a difference. And so this righteousness, I believe, is the righteousness of the saints, but it's the righteousness that Jesus has given the saints, because He promises to give that to us. And He says, right, blessed are those who, come, who are called into the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said unto me, these are the true sayings of God. Now, if we look back in the, in the book of Revelation, to Revelation chapter 7, we remember that God's people are, just before the second coming, described as arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. Notice with me, Revelation chapter 7, we're going to read here a uh, couple of verses here, beginning in verse 13. We have the uh, preceding passage describing the, the, uh, the 144,000, a special group of people. We don't have time to get into all that tonight. But um, I believe they are symbolic. I do not believe these are literal um, 12,000 of each tribe. I know that's among some Bible um, teachers, among some prophecy ex expositors. They will talk about the 144,000 Jews. The problem I have with that is that the Jews, as we know them today, the Jews of Christ's day, in fact, were only from two tribes, weren't they? They were from Judah and Benjamin. And the rest of the ten tribes, the northern kingdom, had pretty much dissolved into the countryside, intermarried with the neighboring countries. Um, and during the time of Nehemiah, they were um, still somewhat around. Uh, remember Sanballat and some of these people that tried to come and help with the temple? Um, there were those who had intermarried. Um, but the Samaritans, essentially, in Jesus' time, were the remnants intermarried remnants of the ten tribes. They really weren't distinguished or distinguishable. And so, I believe that God is going to have from each of the different tribes, even spiritual tribes, and we'll have to, well, well there's so much we could unpack in Revelation. I don't know how we're going to do it all. But, um, but I believe that there are going to be people saved, friends, from every different type of background, every different personality type. They're, the grace of God is sufficient to save anyone. And everyone, I believe, can find themselves in one of those 12 sons of Jacob. And so that's how I understand this. But notice with me what it says. Not talking about the 140,000. Now it's talking about the, the, the great multitude which no man can number. And it talks about it. It says, one of the elders, verse 13, answered and said to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes? And where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. In other words, I have no clue. But you should know, right? Because you're the one that's, that's uh, showing me this vision. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the what? In the blood of the Lamb. So how do robes become white, friends? They're washed in the blood of the Lamb, right? It's not what we can do. It's not anything that I can do to make myself righteous, to make myself acceptable to, for, before God. It's what God can do for me. 
It's the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses me from all sin. And I like the way Revelation uses this, this picture, this, this illustration of being washed in the blood of the Lamb. Now, it's interesting because when we look at the New Testament, we find instances of men and women who needed to make a new start, who needed to have their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. I hope that we can relate to them. Because, you know, friends, what I've learned is that the first step in God being able to, 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 to save us is either for Him to show us His love or to show us our need. But those two have to come pretty closely together. You know, we have to figure out that, hey, we need our robes washed before we can realize, hey, there's someone that can wash them, right? And, um, and so when we look at the New Testament, we see examples. We see examples of those who needed their robes washed. If you look with me in the New Testament, Acts chapter 22. I want to look at one example here just now. Acts chapter 22. Paul the Apostle is... Uh, one of my favorite Bible characters. When I taught um, Bible classes, I had the privilege of teaching um, a year. Every other year, I taught a class on the life of Paul and the writings of Paul for a whole year, and I just loved that because Paul is one of my heroes of faith. But Paul wasn't always who he became, was he? Paul wasn't always the one that we admire today. We begin with verse 4, and um, if it says in verse 4 of Acts chapter 22, did I tell you what chapter? All right, Acts chapter 22, and we're going to begin in verse 4. He says, and I persecuted this way unto the what? What does it say? Unto death, binding and delivering to prisons both men and women. And so uh, Paul was one of those guys who, who he was very zealous for his faith, but he was misguided in his faith, wasn't he? He was sure that he was doing God's service when he was delivering the Christians, not just to be, you know, have their hands slapped. Some of them were delivered unto death. I mean, when Paul is telling this story here in Acts chapter 22, near the end of his ministry, it's very possible that there were Christians all throughout the uh, scattered, um, you know, diaspora of Christians who had been persecuted in Jerusalem and gone all over. It's very possible there were young boys and young girls who, who, who are now adults who had had their parents... They had lost their parents, been orphaned because of this man named Paul. Can you imagine having that on your conscience? Can you imagine killing the very people that God was blessing and using and teaching? You know, sometimes we can get ourselves a little confused, can't we? It's why it's so important. I, I, I know I, I may sound like a broken record sometimes, but it's so important for us to spend time in God's Word. Did you know, and I don't want to get too far off the subject here, but did you know it's not just good enough to follow your conscience? Humanism has made inroads into Christian thinking to the point where many Christians think, well, as long as I follow what's inside of me, like this, this voice of my conscience. And what's shocking for many Christians is to realize, and I'm not saying you should go against your conscience. Hear me out. What's shocking for many Christians is to learn the Bible teaches that there are good consciences and there are bad consciences. The Bible talks about consciences being seared with hot irons, but it also talks about having our con consciences purged with the blood of Jesus Christ. And I believe that as more we, the more we educate our consciences with God's Word, the more reliable our consciences will become. What's more important to me is not what I think and what I feel about it, but what does God say? What does God say? Why should I, friends, be expecting God to work miraculously through some impression or feeling if I'm not willing to listen to what He says in black and white? And so God asks us to, God asks us to, to not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds out of the mouth of God. And so Paul thought he was doing the right thing. He really did. He was sincere, no doubt. He was, he was, he was, he was uh, trying to, to serve God. But then he had that experience on the road to Damascus. You remember the story. He was going there with letters of intent from the Jewish leaders that he might bind men and women there to be able to bring them back and, and try them for being heretics, being 
false teachers. And the Bible tells us the story. Paul's telling the story here in Acts chapter 22. It's verse 6. He says, It came to pass that as I made my journey and was about to come near unto Damascus about noon, suddenly there shone from heaven a great light round about me, and I fell unto the ground. And I heard a voice saying unto me, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said unto me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you persecute. And they that were with me saw indeed the light and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spoke to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said unto me, Arise and go unto Damascus, and there it shall be told you of all things which are appointed for you to do. And so he had to be led by the hand into the city of Damascus. And there he sat for a time, um, not able to see, still blinded from that light. And I'm sure that he must have had time to think during those hours and, and days while he waited, while he was waiting for what God would reveal to him to do next. He must have been thinking about what he had done and, and where he had gone off track and how Jesus actually was alive like his disciples said he was alive. And he had met him on the, Dama on, on the Damascus Road. He, would, he, had, he had, had, had called him by his name and introduced him to him. And later on, he would say, look, I may not have been one of the disciples that spent the three and a half years with the master, but I too met Jesus because he met him on the road to Damascus. And you remember the story of how as he, as he thought, as he, as he prayed, as he, as he realized that he was going to be um, made um, a chosen vessel to be um, a, an instrument to take the gospel to the Gentiles. He waited, and, and soon Ananias was given the message, go down to this house on Straight Street, and there I have a person that you need to talk to. That's uh, Saul. Now, can you imagine Ananias? Surely he knew who Saul was. Oh, Lord, I don't want to go down there. If he's blind and handicapped, that's right where he needs to be, you know? Why would I go down and identify myself as a believer in Jesus? But when the Lord speaks, we have to do what? We have to obey, and Ananias went down. And by the way, I don't know, a couple of years ago I was in Damascus, and I don't know if some of the things, there's still a little church-like chapel on what they what they say was Ananias' house. And uh, it's very possible it's in the old town. I mean, it's certainly been there since, since the time of Paul. And then on Straight Street, which is still there today, between the old gate to the city and right down, there's a lot of shops. Part of it's covered today, sort of in a big bazaar type of a thing with, with uh, a big roof way over top of it and three or four-story houses with windows facing into this open area that's a covered street, more or less. And there's a window they'll point out to you that they say was the house in Straight Street where Paul was. I don't know. There's also the basket, the window on the side of the wall where they let him down the basket. I don't know, but all I know is that Paul was in a house, Saul at the time was in a house on Straight Street. Do you think God knows where we're at? The other thing that I notice about this, it's very interesting in this story, is that Saul was met on the Damascus Road by Jesus himself. Why didn't Jesus just go himself and heal his eyesight? It seems as though God really does expect us to realize that he has a body of believers here on this earth that we're supposed to be connected with, doesn't it? And Saul would be connected with the believers as a new fellow believer. He needed that. He needed that connection. And so Ananias is sent. Saul receives his sight. And he becomes an amazing testimony for Jesus Christ. Notice the words of Ananias. And um, Paul here is describing what happened. Ananias came to me, beginning in verse 13, and stood and said unto me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And the same hour I looked up upon, I looked up upon him, his eyes were open. He could see. And he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see that just one and should hear the voice of his mouth. For 
you shall be his witness unto all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, verse 16, why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. What Saul needed was a new start, didn't he? What he needed was to be able to put away the old and begin the new. Now, he even had the privilege of changing his name, didn't he? From Saul the persecutor to Paul the apostle. Um, But what he needed to do was to have that old life of sin, his old record, the things which he had done that he wasn't proud of, he needed to have them washed away. And so Ananias asked him, what are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized and have your sins washed away. Now we notice that Saul would, would become Paul and Paul would become the great apostle who would, who would become a, the apostle to the Gentiles. Paul wrote most of the New Testament He started the Christian church in several of the language groups, the largest language groups of the world. He was a pioneer missionary who accomplished much for Jesus Christ. But you know, like Saul, you and I also have a past that we would like to do something with, don't we? Now, we hopefully haven't been involved in persecuting or delivering Christians to be killed, but nonetheless, there are things in my past that I don't want to meet in the judgment. There are things in my past, as probably in yours, that you would like to just have buried and washed away. And that is the subject of our study this evening. The book of Revelation tells us that God's people in the last days have their robes washed in the blood of the Lamb. Have you ever wished you could just start all over again? Maybe with what you know now. If you could go back and make all those decisions again, if you could just wash all those mistakes away, God knew that we needed just such an experience. God knew that we all needed a new start, a new life, and He gave us baptism as a symbol of that new start, of that new life. Now, Christian baptism has its origins with the teaching and the practice of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, you remember, was sent as the forerunner of Jesus Christ, And the Bible records in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 5, Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan, verse 6, and were baptized of him in Jordan, doing what? Confessing their sins. So there was, even in the baptism of John, a correlation between confession of sins and the absolution of sins and the the experience of baptism. So here John is preaching. People are coming out. They're flocking. The Bible says all of Judea comes down and they're baptized, confessing their sins. What a revival is going on. But that was just a prelude to the revival that Jesus was going to bring. And as he came to an age where he was understanding his mission, of course, that happened when he was quite young, but he now is prepared for his life of ministry. The Bible records that he closed his carpenter's shop in in Nazareth, and he made his way down to the River Jordan as well. And there he met his cousin whom he had never seen before, um, but who had done this work of, of, of preparing the way for the Messiah. And when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he recognized in him, what was it? What was it that was in Jesus that, that betrayed the fact that he was the spotless son of God? What was it that made John realize that here, he, here was the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? I don't know what it was. I mean, John obviously was a prophet, wasn't he? And Jesus would say, no greater prophet had ever been born of woman than John the Baptist. So God must have revealed that to him, but I just wonder if there wasn't in the very countenance and bearing of Jesus something that let John know this is the one. He's not coming for repentance. He's the one who takes the sin of the world. John chapter 1 and verse 29. And so when Jesus came to him, John was rather stunned that that the Messiah, that the Lamb of God, the spotless Son of God would come to to be baptized in the Jordan River, the muddy Jordan River, by him, the forerunner, him, the, 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 uh, the sinner. He wasn't, he wasn't the one who was to come. He was just announcing the one to come. And John even said, I need to be baptized by you. I'm the one that needs to be baptized. And Jesus said to John, let it be so now, for it is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. You see, 
Jesus knew that as our example, he wanted to let us know that each one of us have the privilege of following in his steps and having our sins washed away. Jesus didn't have any sins to wash away, did he? But he was the one who says, left us an example, Peter says, that we should follow in his steps. And so Jesus goes down into the, into the waters and he's baptized. Now, this is what the Bible says in, in uh, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 16. Not 13, I didn't see that until just now. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Now we understand that this marked the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. In fact, it was at his baptism that Jesus was anointed. Acts chapter 10 and verse 38. Acts chapter 10 and verse 38, if you're taking notes, it says that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. When was he anointed with the Holy Ghost? He was anointed at his baptism, wasn't he? That's when the dove, uh, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove was seen, and the word Messiah means the anointed one. That's in the Hebrew, or the I guess you might say the transliteration of the Hebrew, uh, the Messiah. The same in the Greek is the word Christ. Christ means the anointed one. It's a title, not a name. Although we in English have become accustomed to using it as a name. Jesus, the Christ. Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus was the anointed one. And he was anointed by God at his baptism. And so baptism became a practice in the followers of Jesus as well. Though Jesus did not baptize, the Bible records that his disciples did. The Pharisees heard that Jesus was gaining more was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples, John chapter 4 and verse 2. Now this was exactly what God wanted them to do, what Jesus wanted them to do. In fact, some of his last words as he left the disciples after his resurrection, at his ascension, he gives them instructions, and these were his instructions. He said, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The next verse continues, Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, even to the end of the world. Isn't it comforting to know that Jesus is with us? He promises, Look, I'm with you go. By the way, verse 18, we really shouldn't read verse 19, 20 without reading verse 18. Verse 18 says, all power is given me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore, make disciples, baptize them, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Now, what is a disciple anyway? It's a follower, right? I mean, a disciple is someone who has been mentored, who has been molded, who has been, we even have the word discipline from the same root, right? He's been disciplined by his interaction with the, the, with the master. And so a disciple is someone who lives like the master, who believes like the master, who teaches like the master. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, to be a disciple of Jesus, because I want to be a disciple of Jesus, because I've chosen to be a disciple of Jesus, I want to know everything I can about Jesus. Amen? I want to know what he believed. I want to know how he lived. I want to be as much like Jesus as possible. I think that's what a disciple is supposed to be. Now, to do that, he says, teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you, right? But he also gave them instruction to baptize them, make disciples of all nations, and baptize them. Now, what type or mode of baptism would Jesus' disciples have practiced after he left them, after he had ascended to heaven? Now, the, the New Testament church records that it was probably the same type of baptism that Jesus himself experienced. We read the story of how when he met John the Baptist at the Jordan River, he, he went down into the water and he came up out of the water, right? That's what, that's what the Bible record records. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4 and verse 5, there's one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. And in the book of Acts, we find a, f a few instances 
um, of baptism being, being described, one in particular which has details and helps us to understand how the New Testament church saw baptism. So let's look in the book of Acts again. Acts chapter 8 this time. Acts chapter 8, and we're going to find the story of Philip. Philip was a deacon who was, who was uh, also an evangelist. He had seven daughters. They were also had the gift of prophecy and were testifying and telling about Jesus. And um, this is after the persecution had begun in Jerusalem, after the stoning of Stephen, and uh, the, the, the disciples are scattered around and they're teaching and telling about Jesus. And the Bible says that the, uh, Philip was heading down um, from Jerusalem unto Gaza, across the desert, and uh, he was doing that because that's what the Holy Spirit had told him to do. That's what God had sent him on that errand. And he comes across a chariot where there's the Ethiopian eunuch, the treasurer of the country of Ethiopia, or the queen of Ethiopia. He has a charge of all of her treasure, the Bible says. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, so that means that he had already been learning about the true God of heaven, wouldn't you agree? He already knew something about worship. He had, he had been there in the temple, well, at least the outer court, because the Gentiles wouldn't have been allowed into the inner precincts of the temple, but he had been there for the probably the, uh, the day of Pentecost or one of the uh, festivals, maybe the day of Passover, because, um, well, anyway, we go on and we, we, we know that he's coming back from one of the feasts and he's studying a scroll of Isaiah. So he's trying to understand the Word of God, and, and um, this is what happened when the Spirit said to Philip, this is who you're to witness to, go and join yourself to this chariot. Verse 30, Acts chapter 8 and verse 30, it says, the Spirit said to, uh, Philip ran thither to him and said, and heard him read the prophet Isaiah, and said, Do you understand what you're reading? And he said, How can I, except some man guides me? And he desired that Philip would come up and sit with him. And the place of the scripture which he read was this. Do you believe in divine appointments? How did God know that this man would be reading that passage at that time? Listen, God can do something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. Aren't you thankful that God cares about us? Does it matter what country we come from? Does it matter the color of our skin? Does it matter whether we're rich or poor? Listen, God is working on this Ethiopian eunuch's heart. He doesn't even know Jesus at all. And yet Jesus is going to introduce himself to him. And he's going to use one of his servants, Philip, to do so. And so he's reading in Isaiah. He's reading... Um, Isaiah chapter 53, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter, like a lamb dumb before his shearers, so he opened not his mouth. In his humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. Who is this talking about? Well, that's what the eunuch asked Philip. Who's it talking about? And that's what Philip said. It's talking about, let me tell you, let me tell you, there was a Messiah the anointed of God, the sent of God. He was rejected and crucified by his own countrymen, exactly like the prophet said. But he's the Savior, the, the Lamb of God, the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. He's the one the Old Testament prophecies foretold. Jesus is the one true Lamb of God to take away our sins. And as the Ethiopian heard this Bible study bouncing along on that dusty road heading towards North Africa, I'm sure his heart must have just thrilled and leaped within him as he saw that the very things the prophecies had talked about were, had been fulfilled just in his own day. And this was a, he was alive to, to know about it and to hear about it. And, and the Holy Spirit must have been working through Philip's words to bring a desire in that Ethiopian man's heart so that he wanted, he wanted to not just be a believer in the true God and the God of Isaiah and Jeremiah, he wanted to be a, a follower, disciple of the scent of God, the Messiah, Jesus, the one Isaiah had predicted. And so the story continues that as, they, as they're going along in this chariot, the Bible says that, that um, they came to a point where there was water. The Bible says in verse 36... They went on their way, and they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. 
What hinders me from being baptized? What did Philip say? He said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. What did he need to believe? Now, some people have said, well, see, he just had one Bible study. But don't you think the Ethiopian eunuch already knew an awful lot about the God of the Jews? You don't come to worship in the temple in Jerusalem without understanding and knowing, right? So he already believed. He already believed in the God of the Old Testament. He was already studying the Word. There's a lot of truth that he must have already known, but what, he, what did he not know until this time? He didn't know about Jesus. And friends, you can know about all kinds of things. In fact, you can even know about Jesus, but if you don't know Jesus, it doesn't do you a whole lot of good. And here the, 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 Philip says, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And the Ethiopian said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He was convinced. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. What an amazing story. Wouldn't you agree? The Bible says that he went down into the water. In fact, the record continues in verse 30, uh, 39. And when they were come up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord caught away Philip, that the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. So what mode of baptism did the early church practice? Seems pretty clear to me, doesn't it to you, that these were not just a little bit of a sprinkling that the uh, believers had, but they went down into the water and they came up out of the water. That's what happened with Jesus. That's what happened to the only other New Testament detailed description of a baptism, where it says they went down into the water and they came up out of the water. This is what happens when we bury the old life of sin and start a new life in Jesus Christ, we go on our way rejoicing as well. Clearly, immersion was the mode of baptism practiced by the early church. In fact, there is no evidence in the New Testament for any other form or method of baptism. Now, here's a church baptistry in the first century Christian church in Philippi. And um, I've been there. I've seen that baptistry. And this is not a baptistry that you would just sprinkle someone in, is it? It's something that you would get down into. It's a large pool, something that would be used for baptism by immersion. Early church historians and findings by archaeologists both show that immersion was the mode of baptism until the 12th and 13th centuries. Here you have a picture of the uh, St. John's Church located in the ruins of the biblical city of Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. The church was built as a memorial to the disciple John. You'll remember that John, well, you may not remember, this is probably not so much in the Bible as it is in Christian history, that John lived in Ephesus for quite a number of years. And remember, who had Jesus given John responsibility to take care of? The Mary, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so Mary lived with John in Ephesus uh, until her last days. And um, here this church is built as a memorial. And again, you have a baptistry that's clearly a font, a baptismal tank that is meant for baptism by immersion. Um, when we, we've heard, probably most of us have heard, of the, um, well, here's another, another picture of the, of the church in, in Turkey. Most of us have heard of the Leaning Tower of Pisa, right? And um, that's famous for its poor engineering. And um, it's leaning at an angle. It's been rescued recently. I guess you probably know they've taken the cables off. They've done a lot of supporting underneath. Of course, they have to keep it at that angle because that's why all the tourists come to, you know, take those pictures holding it up. Um, but most people don't realize that right on the other side of the church in Pisa um, is a baptistry. And if you go to the other side of the cathedral, there's the baptistry. It's about 130 feet tall. And believe it or not, it was built in, as I recall, it was built in the late 13th century, 12-something. And um, believe it or not, you can go in these little doors. That's, that's the door on the bottom. So you can see how tall it is. Um, and... Um, you go in here and you can go upstairs and you can go all the way around and around and around and around and around and around and you can go up between the two layers of domes up here above and look down at the font below. And um, it's a little bit unnerving, I have to say, to think of a church that was built, what is that, 800 or so years ago 
and um, you're, you don't know how many tens of thousands of people have been crawling around and messing around and all, and you're up here on a dome that's held together by gravity and precise fitting of stones and whatever else. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's an exercise in faith, I would say. Um, but there it is. And um, in the, in the uh, church itself, down in the bottom, is a baptistry and a, a, a tank. 1,300 years after Christ's ascension, the mode of baptism was still by immersion. In fact, this is what Cardinal James Gibbons, again, an authority in church history, said. Faith of Our Fathers, 94th edition, page 277. For several centuries after the establishment of Christianity, baptism was usually conferred by immersion. But since the 12th century, the practice of baptizing by infusion has prevailed in the Catholic Church, as this manner is attended with less inconvenience than baptism by immersion. The Church exercises her discretion in adopting the most convenient mode according to the circumstances of time and place. So have you ever wondered why the Church stopped baptizing by immersion? What does he say? Because it wasn't convenient. Um, now you have to remember, before we judge people, before we but past value judgments. Let's remember that this was a time in earth's history when the Bible was largely forgotten, wasn't it? This was a time when the common people weren't allowed to have the scriptures, and the professional paid clergy that weren't that concerned about the truth of the scriptures didn't bother searching them and knowing for themselves what they taught. And so um, there's a lot of a lot of very sincere people, I'm sure, but it just wasn't as convenient. And the church teaches that there are three modes, um, aspersion, effusion, I think it does. And it's basically a, a splashing, sprinkling, or immersion. And it says we can do any one we choose, um, which is whoever is more convenient according to the circumstance of time and place. I say that God is calling in these days for a group of people once again to just follow his word, don't you think? I think that God is, God is looking for people who will say, not what is convenient, not what I think, but what does God's Word say? And the testimony of Scripture seems pretty clear. And there's nothing wrong with sprinkling water on a baby. I think you can do that as many times as you want. But it simply isn't baptism by immersion. It's not baptism in the biblical sense of the word. In fact, baptism itself is, is one of those interesting words that is not really translated. In fact, when the translators of the Bible came to this Greek word baptizo, they said, well, what is that? Now, this is a problem. It's a beautiful thing, and it's also a problem that we see with the translation of the Bible. The, the Bible, in the English language, in the German language, in the French language, with Wycliffe, with, with Calvin, with Luther, the Bible greatly amplified and expanded and, 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 and ennobled each of these written languages in the Bible's translated, because there's so much rich depth and texture and color in the Bible that they had to, they had to work to, to bring words together that would properly express what the Bible was trying to, trying to say. But when they came to this word, most of the time, the translators would just translate, right? But at that time in history, when you were baptized, you were sprinkled, right? And so it didn't make sense for the translators when they looked at this word, they said, we know what it means, but that's not what we do. And so it was easier for them, instead of translating it, it was easier for them to transliterate it. And that's basically they Romanized it. Instead of having the Greek characters baptizo, they just made an English word out of it, baptism. Okay? That, so they made a new word, a new English word, out of the Greek word. And, um, and so they said baptism is a word that will do. It means to dip, to immerse, to plunge underwater. Otherwise, we would have said, you know, um, arise and be plunged underwater that your sins might be forgiven, right? That's what Paul would have said. Um, and that's how it would have been translated. <laughs> but now they've made a new word, arise and be baptized. What are you waiting for? Arise and be baptized. Your sins can be washed away. 
So baptism means to plunge underneath the water. And this is a fitting description of what baptism is meant to be. Notice with me what Paul says to the Romans in Romans chapter 6, verses 3 and 4. He says, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him through baptism into his death. So baptism is a symbol, a a spiritual symbol of death and burial, right? And so just like Jesus died, did he really die? Yeah. Was he really buried? When someone buried when someone is buried, do they just take a little bit of dirt and Is that how they do it? Now you're buried? Is that how about... Bur- no, it's not. When someone's buried, they actually bury them, right? And when someone's dead, they, they get buried. They better get buried. And so Jesus was really dead. He was really buried. But the good news, friends, is that Jesus didn't stay buried. He didn't stay dead because Jesus was resurrected. And just like we're baptized, just like that, when we are baptized, our old man is buried and we rise to live a new life. Notice with me what it says in the rest of verse 4, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in what? Newness of life. Oh, you want to have a new life? You want to make a new start? The Bible provides for that. Just like Jesus died and buried and rose again, baptism symbolizes death, burial of our old man, our old way of life, our self-seeking nature. It's to be buried with Jesus. And the same spirit that rose Jesus from the grave, that gave resurrection power on that resurrection Sunday, the same Holy Spirit, I believe, friends, still has power today. What do you say? I believe the same power, the same Holy Spirit has power to give us new life, spiritual life. Oh, Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, for if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. What an amazing miracle. Listen, friends, if your Christianity is just what you can get out of a self-help book or what you can do on your own, it's a waste of your time. I want a religion with miracles. I want a, a religion that can do more for me, a Savior that can do more for me than I can do for myself. I've tried making myself better. I've tried doing right. This old heart of mine is stubborn. My, my, my way of doing things, my way of thinking, my way of judging or criticizing or whatever it is, I need a miracle. And I'm thankful there's a God that's still alive. And there's a Holy Spirit promise to us to invigorate us and to, to, to awaken in us new life. Even so, we also should walk in newness of life. But how important is the rite of baptism? How important is it for us to actually be baptized? Is it just something that Jesus did and we think that's nice? Or is it something that's pretty important? Look with me in your Bibles to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, we're going to look at the story of a man who came to Jesus by night. A rich Jewish leader by the name of Nicodemus came secretly to talk with Jesus. He was He had too much of the fear of the Jews, the fear of man in his heart, to be able to come to Jesus by day. He needed the fear of God, didn't he? He needed that miracle of conversion to put the fear of God in his heart, so he cared more about what God thought than what man thought. So he wanted God's approval more than he wanted man's approval. But he's not there yet. He was a seeker. And it's all right to be a seeker, isn't it? Did Jesus love seekers? Did Jesus love Nicodemus? And it wasn't because, of, because he was a leader of the Jews. It wasn't because he had a lot of money. Jesus loved him because he loves sinners. He loves you and he loves me. And so Jesus received Nicodemus that night. The same, the Bible says in verse 2, John chapter 3 and verse 2, the same came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no man can do the, these miracles that you do except God be with him. Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now this was a little bit of an abrupt response to Nicodemus. You see, Nicodemus had come wanting to be very professional and and very, you know, very business-like. Rabbi, we know you're from God. You're a great teacher. You're doing miracles. You must be from God. He didn't really believe that Jesus was the Messiah. 
He didn't at this point, but he was interested in knowing more about Jesus. We know that you're a teacher sent from God, and Jesus gets right to the point. He doesn't dilly-dally. He doesn't do a little small talk. He doesn't say, oh, Nicodemus, I know you're a great man too. I've heard of your wealth. It's said that Nicodemus, you remember the two men who went to Pilate for the body of Jesus? Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea, they both had immense fortunes. I believe it was Nicodemus, Josephus, the Jewish historian records, that Nicodemus was so wealthy that he could have, out of his own pocket, sustained, fed, supported the inhabitants of the entire city of Jerusalem for a year. But Nicodemus didn't get any type of flattery out of Jesus, did he? He didn't, Nicodemus, Jesus didn't say, Nicodemus, oh, thank you, thank you for coming. You know, it's really good to see a Jewish leader that's coming over to the right side and understanding the truth and, you know, we could use your support. And did he, Is that what Jesus said? No. Jesus went straight to the chase. He went straight to the problem. He said, you know what, Nicodemus? None of that matters. What matters is whether or not you're born again. Oh, I wish I could be more like Jesus. I wish I could just say a few words and it would be like heaven opened and light of God's truth is shown into someone's heart and they saw their need and knew the Savior could supply it and were converted. I mean, Jesus, just in a few words here, he just flips a switch and and all of a sudden, Nicodemus says, wait a minute. You're saying, I have to be born again? I mean, I'm a ruler of the Jews. You didn't even notice that. You didn't even give me credit for that. Does being a good person count? Does it make you saved in the end? Does being a church leader save you? Does being respected in your community save you? None of it matters. And Jesus was just brushing it all aside. None of it matters. You have to be born again. And all of a sudden, the thought of a place too pure for him to enter was, was confounding to Nicodemus. And he didn't know how to respond to it except to sort of get into this intellectual dialogue, debate about it. And so he asked Jesus, he says, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus says, verily, verily. I like it, I like it when, it's, when Jesus says, verily, verily. It just basically means most assuredly, truly, truly, we would say, don't, I'm not kidding, <laughs> maybe in the common vernacular. I'm serious about this. Except a man is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not to, that I say unto you, you must be born again. And so John 3, this story, this passage here in John chapter 3, Jesus is telling Nicodemus, look, in order for us to enter the kingdom of God, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter how many good things you've done, it doesn't matter how many wonderful church projects you've supported, Nicodemus, it doesn't matter how much leadership you've given, it doesn't matter if you are esteemed among the churchgoers as being the most righteous man in Jerusalem, all of that, none of that matters. What matters is if you're born again, and how do you need to be born again? Of water and of the Spirit, right? Of water and of the Spirit. Now, water, he obviously is speaking of being born again of water, being that new birth experience, burial, resurrection, new birth, new life of baptism. But that by itself won't save us, will it? It can't. It's only as it symbolizes something really happening, and that's our trusting the Holy Spirit to give us new life as we also ask ourselves to be crucified with Christ, as we choose to let the old man die. And so John 3 gives us the understanding of how Jesus at least saw baptism. He saw it as essential for our salvation, that we must be born again of water and of the Spirit. And there's a couple of reasons why I believe that. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But just like, just like Jesus does not expect us to be born again or born for the first time 
into a world as orphans without parents, right? Aren't you glad God made us the way we did? We're not just, we don't just hatch an egg somewhere off in the forest. Come out looking for our peoples. Um, I'm glad God made us that way. He made us to be born into a family. Intentionally. He made us to be born into a family. And God expects that when we're born again, we're born into a family as well. And that's why it's not just as important to be born of the Spirit, but to be born as water as well. Look at it in just a minute. This is what Jesus said in Mark 16, verse 16. Whoever believes and is baptized shall be saved. Remember what Philip told the Ethiopian eunuch? If you believe with all your heart, you may. Um, Belief is important, but it must be followed by that action of baptism. Jesus said in Matthew 28 and verses 19 and 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things uh, that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. And so these verses tell us that baptism is very important, at least in Jesus' view, and that's the view that matters, isn't it? It's not what Chester Clark says, it's not what I think, But Jesus says, if you want to be saved, you want to be in the kingdom, Nicodemus, you have to be born again of water and of the Spirit. Jesus said that there are several things that we must do in order to be saved and steps that would precede, I believe, baptism. First, we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. Isn't that what Philip told the eunuch? If you believe with all your heart, if you believe in Jesus as your personal Savior, then you may indeed be baptized. Secondly, Jesus said to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, right? And so we want to understand the teachings of Jesus. We want to understand how Jesus lived and what he believed and what he taught. Isn't that important if we're going to follow him, to know who we're following? I've heard people say, oh, but isn't isn't it good enough that I just love Jesus? Yeah, but what Jesus do you love? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, right? And the more we study our Bibles, the more we know truth, the more we know Jesus. And I have to be a little blunt here when I say in Christianity today, there's lots of different Jesus. Some people are in love with a Jesus that simply isn't found in Scripture. And uh, I believe that the more we know about Jesus, the more we're going to love Him. To know God is to love Him. And the more you know the truth, the more you're going to love Him. There's nothing wrong with learning and understanding the teachings of Jesus and and then wanting to follow Him. The third step, simple three steps. The third, to confess and repent of our sins. But some people ask the question, um, when I'm baptized, do do I become a part of a church or am I only baptized into Jesus? And this is one of the reasons I believe, this is my personal conviction here, um, you you can judge as you choose, but I believe this is one of the reasons why God does not just require only faith only belief, but why he asks us to be baptized, born of water and the Spirit, because this is the way that we get connected with the family of God. This is the way that just like Saul was connected with Ananias in order to be brought into the Christian faith, this is the way that we are not born as spiritual orphans, but we're connected with the family of God, the body of Christ. The Bible teaches that baptism into Christ is also baptism into Christ's body, the church. So I want to show you that from the Bible. Again, it's not what I say that's important. Let's look at what the book of Acts says. Acts chapter 2, verses 41 and 42. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. That's to the Christian church, right? And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and prayers. So you notice what happened. Those who believed were baptized, and they were added to them, right? And then they stayed in fellowship with them. Isn't that, isn't that what the book of Acts describes? That's exactly what I see in those verses. If we look on a few verses later, we notice, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple, and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the what? The church daily those who were being saved. So in the passage, it describes how the Lord added to them, right? It was through their belief and then baptism and ongoing fellowship. God intends, friends, that just like we're born into a family, literally, physically, spiritually also, we are born 
into the body of Christ. Those baptized into the book of Acts became a part of God's Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, truth-teaching church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13 says, for by one spirit we were all baptized into what? Into one body. So how do we join the body? It's pretty clear, isn't it? The Bible's pretty clear. It's we're born again by water and the spirit. When men and women accept Jesus and commit their lives to follow him, they wish to be a part of the body of Christ. They wish to worship with like believers. Their hearts burn within them to be a part of God's faithful people. And it's not very hard. It's not very hard to want to be baptized. Baptism is not something like, oh, do I have to? That would be sort of like saying to someone who's engaged, or someone who's engaged saying, do I have to get married? You know, when I was engaged, um, we decided that we would spend about six months planning our wedding. And um, six months sounds like a long time when you're in love. And, um, you know, you, you, want to, you want to get married. And six months, it was, this was January when I proposed, and we were going to get married in the end of June. It just seemed like forever and ever, a long ways away, a long time away. That six months went very fast. And I can confess that when we, came to the, when we came up to that last weekend and my family had gathered and friends had gathered and the plans and preparations had all been made, I was excited. I wanted the day to come. I wanted to, I wanted to get married. I wanted to have our lives united forever as long as this life shall last. It was exciting to me. I didn't, I didn't find myself. I guess some people do get cold feet, don't they? But I didn't. I don't think when you're really in love, you will. I don't think you'll be saying, do I have to get married? <laughs> no. It was, it was the day that we'd been longing for and looking forward to. And so also, I believe that Jesus, it's, it shouldn't be something that's burdensome for us to want to be born of water and the Spirit. It should be something that's very, very exciting. One time, Paul and his co-worker Silas went to a city in Philippi, at the invitation of the Macedonian man that Paul heard or saw in his vision. And as a result of their teaching, the city became very agitated and a, a mob gathered and tore off the men's clothing and the authorities had them beaten. They were taken to prison where the jailer put them into a heavy confinement to make sure they did not escape. And in the middle of this terrible experience, can you imagine... You're on a mission trip. You're doing what you think is the right thing. You're teaching the truth. You're telling about Jesus. You're trying to save souls. And as a result, you get beaten, thrown into jail, the skin lashed off of your back, your feet in stocks. You're in a filthy, dark place. How would you feel? Pretty bad. But I want to tell you something. These men, Paul and Silas, they were in love with a man named Jesus. And Jesus had suffered more than that for them. And so here they are in the Philippi jail, in agony, pain, misery. I'm sure they can't sleep. And what are they doing? Moaning and groaning, complaining? I tell you, friends, if there's ever a testimony that the gospel can change lives, it's when Christians, believers, are going through hard times. And here they are going through a terrible time, and yet the, the men around them are astonished that these gentlemen, falsely accused, imprisoned and beaten for doing right, they're singing and praising God. And at midnight, at midnight, that singing is wafting out of the jailhouse doors and and it's carried across the little valley there. If when you go to the old city of Philippi, it's where they say it is, it was right above the Agora, the market. So anyone would have heard right there below these men singing. Midnight, an earthquake shakes the prison. And the doors of the prison fly open. The other prisoners are so transfixed, so impressed by these believers in a man called Jesus Christ, they didn't even flee. They wanted to stay with them. The jailer, thinking that everyone had escaped, must have been startled awake, and he's about to take his own life when 
Paul says, don't do it. Don't do it. They bring a light, and sure enough, they find out that Paul and Silas are still there, and the rest of the prisoners are still there. The story is found in Acts chapter 16, how as as the uh, jailer now has this added testimony of the incredible love and grace that fills these men's heart, he knows that something is superhuman about them. He's heard their testimonies. He's heard their praises. He's heard their songs. And now he wants to know everything about the God that they serve because, listen, if a God can make men like that, I want to be a part of it. I want to know that kind of a God. The Philippian jailer, beginning in verse 28, verse 29, he calls for a light and he came in and came trembling and falls down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? I want what you have. I want my sins to be washed away. Oh, Paul could have said, I didn't always have this. I once lived a different life. I didn't have peace in my heart. I had to take it out on other people to try to make myself feel better. But Jesus Christ changed me. Jesus Christ transformed me. And the prisoner, the the jailer is saying, I want what you have. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said in verse 31, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spoke unto him, notice with me, it didn't stop there. They spoke unto him the word of the Lord. Jesus said, teaching them the things I've commanded you, right? They gave a Bible study. And that night, not only was the jailer baptized, verse 33 says, he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his, straight away. Oh, what a wonderful story. What a wonderful story of how Jesus can save. Jesus can change. Jesus can wash our sins away. Are you thankful for that Jesus tonight? Are you thankful that he offers to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves? All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. But Jesus says that in the last day when he comes again, there are going to be men and women, boys and girls, who like Paul and Silas. Their lives aren't just aren't just an ordinary lives. Their lives reflect the very character and righteousness of Jesus Christ. These are those who washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. In the word of Paul, in Acts chapter 22, and why are the words spoken to Paul in Acts chapter 22? Why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. Is there anything in this world, friends, that should stand between us and wanting that experience and having that experience? Listen, I don't want to lose out on eternal life for anything in this world. Not anything that I have, not any possessions, not my career, not my family or friends, nothing should stand between me and Jesus. Nothing should prevent me from making that decision. Once again this evening, the table leaders have a response card, and they're going to put it in your hands. This topic is a wonderful topic, and I don't know what would be, could be better than a chance to start anew. And there's no way that I'm going to preach on making a new start without giving the opportunity for somebody here to make that decision, to make a new start in their own lives. Let's take some time and open our hearts to hear the Spirit's voice calling us through His Word tonight. So just ask the Savior. I'd invite you to ask the Savior, Lord Jesus, what would you want me to do? If you haven't followed His example in baptism by immersion, then I'm quite sure He's speaking to your heart, and He's asking you, what are you waiting for? Why don't, what would prevent you from committing publicly to me. He gave everything for us, friends. Why would we not do anything that he asks? So just take this little card and we'll go through it together. Tonight, the most important decision that we can make is to uh, make the decision to accept Jesus into our hearts.
Is there anything really worth holding on to? The expense of eternity? So the first option that you can prayerfully check if you would like says, It is clear to me that Jesus' death provides the gift of eternal life for all who believe. Is that what your card says? It's not what mine says either. I understand that Bible baptism is a willful public commitment to Jesus, being immersed under the water, symbolizing the burial of the old life, and being raised to begin a new life in Jesus. So if that's clear to you, just you go ahead and check that box. I've never been baptized in the biblical manner before, but I desire to so publicly confess my love and commitment for Jesus, I would like to prepare for baptism in the near future. If that's your desire, if you've never taken or had the opportunity to make that decision, I would invite you to, to just check that box tonight. The third one says, I've been baptized by immersion, but I've wandered from God's love. I desire to be rebaptized in a renewal of my covenant with Jesus. The third option applies to many. You know, um, in Acts chapter 19, we find the example of those who were rebaptized when they came into a newer knowledge, a fuller knowledge of Jesus. And the last one is number four I would like to recommit my life to Jesus again today. I think all of us should be able to do that. Amen. All of us ought to be able to say, I would like to recommit my life to Jesus again today. When you're finished with that, you can just drop it in the bucket in the table. And um, we're going to pray a special prayer for those decisions, those commitments, those responses. Because I believe, I believe the same Jesus that walked among men, that talked to Nicodemus by night, that met Saul on the road to Damascus, I believe that same Jesus is still here tonight. Don't you believe that? He's wanting us too to have a personal, saving relationship with Him. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father in heaven, tonight we've made some decisions. There are some who have checked these boxes because it's really the desire of their heart. They want more than anything else to have a walk with Jesus that nothing can stand in between them. Lord, I pray, I pray that as we've talked about making a new start tonight, as we've talked about what it means to have our robes washed in the blood of the Lamb, that we might fall more and more in love with our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ, that we might indeed become born again of water and of the Spirit, that we might not just want to make a decision in our heart and know Jesus' person as a friend, but we might want to to take that example, follow that example that He gave for us, to be baptized and, and to be a part of His body of Bible-believing, truth-teaching believers here still in 2014. Oh, Father, I thank You for this opportunity and this chance to uplift You and Your plan for us tonight. I want to play especially a special prayer for those who may be struggling with a decision. Maybe there's something something in their heart or their life that is keeping them from, from coming all the way to your altar and putting it all at your feet. Lord, I just pray that your spirit would open their eyes, that the eyes of their heart, their spiritual understanding, they might see, Father, that there's nothing worth losing heaven for. Lord, that there's nothing that should be so valuable, no idol, that could take the place of Jesus. Oh, Lord, what a wonderful opportunity you've given to us to make a new start. I pray that each and every one of us today might leave here knowing that our sins have been washed away, that we are in love with our Savior, that we're following, we're disciples of His, we're following Him more closely every day, and we're wanting to know all the truth that He has to offer us. May this be our experience. Bless each heart. Bless each home gathered here. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.